Hello and welcome to Talk To Be Well. I'm your host, Dr. Robin Henderson, Chief Executive of Behavioral Health for Providence here in Oregon and the Chief Clinical Officer for Work To Be Well. Here with me today to talk about the mental health and acceptance of Ukrainian refugees compared to refugees from other Middle Eastern and African nations are two high school students from our National Student Advisory Council and one of our alumni from our original uh, Student Advisory Council who's a college student. So we're super excited to have a special guest today. But as a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. It is not intended nor is implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Let's get started by having each of you introduce yourself, where you're from, and, and why does this topic matter? Dominic, why don't you kick us off? Okay. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Dominic, and I am from Burbank, California. And uh, this topic matters, obviously, because, you know, there is a war going on in the world right now. And there is significant disparities in the way that different immigrants are treated and the different way that refugees are treated. And so, you know, having this discussion and, and talking about this topic is important because of how relevant it is. What's up? Uh, my name is Cole Wright. I'm a senior and I'm from Happy Valley, Oregon. I want to echo Dominic a little bit and that all the nuances of war and how refugees and victims are treated are pretty horrific to me. Um, I don't enjoy seeing difficulties in war and I'm in a couple history classes at school where we're studying current events and I don't know, I just want to be part of the conversation. I find it interesting. Uh, hi, I'm Billy. Um... I am technically from Bend, Oregon, but living between Portland and Salem right now. Uh, and this topic is um, pretty important to me um, just because, uh, like Dominic had said, there's a war going on right now. Um, and through a lot of my um, activist work and like going out to protests, I've uh, learned a lot about the treatment of refugees. Um, and for like, especially a lot of wars are like happening while I was pretty young. I didn't know about like the stuff that was going on at the time. And now when I look back on those, um, on those wars and what happened with those refugees is so incredibly infuriating. And so it's just something that I really wanted to shed some more light on um, and talk about because I feel like uh, there needs to be more discussion on this, especially right now. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting. I think this is the first war that has literally been broadcast live on TV all the time. And you could practically turn on any television channel. You can see, I, I was watching the Grammys. During the Grammys broadcast, we've got a taped, taped you know, interview with the president of the Ukraine. And, and so this, I think, is in your face in a very different way. And I think that also has really impacted how we treat and accept Ukrainian refugees and, and how we're doing that. How has the, the media and all the other things around this perhaps created something that's a different experience than from prior wars in like Syria and Yemen and, and Palestine? I mean, is, is it different? Is it the same? What is it? I mean, I think that's a wonderful question and I'd like to start us off. Um, I was watching this video where it did a comparison of the way that media responds to Ukrainian refugees and then versus how the, the media responds to 
you know, refugees from Palestine and from, you know, other Muslim dominant countries um, and even like countries um, in South America and in Central America. And it was weird because you hear, you know, like the word for like South American immigrants, like the word caravan being thrown around a lot. And, you know, a lot of negative sort of stereotypes, like swarms and almost like treating them like locusts, which they obviously are not a terrible bug. Um, they're human beings who have dignity and should be treated as such. But then when you listen to like media coverage of Ukrainian refugees, it's it's always sympathetic and it's always like feeling bad for them. And obviously, I mean, everyone should feel bad and be sympathetic and want to help Ukrainians. But I don't think that, you know, individuals from Muslim dominant countries or countries in South America should be treated any differently. And the way that the media covers them, I mean, you just the disparity in the way that we talk about these different situations um, is proof that we are definitely treating these uh, refugees in wildly different manners. Yeah, I'm kind of echoing that. Um, like I did a lot of research um, on this topic, preparing for the questions. Um, and there's an article that I had, um, read that was talking about uh, how, like, even with um, other Eastern European countries, um, how they have had, like, such an incredibly sympathetic um, view of Ukrainian refugees. Um, They've been opening their borders and saying, we'll let all of them in. Um, and that's really good. Like, that is absolutely, like, how we should be treating refugees. But then I'd read and see how these very same Eastern European countries during the, um, is it the 2015 refugee crisis in Syria, um, how they had... Um, they had initial sympathy, but that sympathy waned so very fast. Um, and like they'd even talk about how they um, there'd be like an influx of a million Syrian refugees, um, and they would say, "We can't handle this. We can't like open our borders, allow that many people in all at once. It's too much to handle." And then now we see them allow, like laying in over 2 million Ukrainian refugees without any of that, um, that same uh, dialogue happening. For me personally, I'd like to echo what both of you say. Um, there's definitely an inherent difference in the way that victims have been treated in this war versus others. Like in studying history, um, it seems like most of the genocides and large-scale wars I've looked into, like countries bordering the nation that's falling victim to the attacks, like they take in a certain flux of refugees and then they kind of strip it away at some point when they're like, I don't know if I want to be a part of this anymore. But from everything I've seen and been able to comprehend about the Russia and Ukraine war, it seems like there's pretty much a global fight to ensure that these refugees are being supported and taken in when they need to be. It really is like a global coming together of we have to support the Ukrainian um, refugees. Um, and that like got me thinking a lot more. Um, like, should we all remember what it was like living with Trump as a president? Um, not very fun. Uh, and one thing that, um, like really stuck out to me now, um, looking back on and thinking about the current um, Ukraine situation was 
the fact that the Trump administration literally put forward a Muslim ban um, and they just called it a Muslim ban. There wasn't any like sort of um, like deeper definition of who they were trying to ban. Um, they didn't like, there wasn't any sort of vetting process. Uh, and I feel like a lot of people aren't really fully aware about what that Muslim ban actually entailed. So I'm going to talk a bit about that. Um, the Muslim ban was a series of Trump administration executive orders um, and the initial first two versions of that ban. I think that's something a lot of people also don't know. There's multiple versions of this. Um, the initial first two banned entry into the United States from Iran, Iraq, uh, Libya, Somalia, Syria, Sudan, and Yemen. It also banned all entry of refugees um, for 120 days, and it indefinitely banned all entry of Syrian refugees. Now, the first two versions of this ban were rightly overturned by the Supreme Court um, since they were just so openly um, racist, essentially. Uh, but the third version of the ban is what got signed into effect. And this third version um, did include provisions uh, by which people would be considered for waivers from the ban. Um, but uh, Justice Stephen Breyer actually um, had described this, these provisions as a widow dressing. They were purely for um, purely for looks, essentially, so they would get signed into law. Um, the 3.0 still holds an indefinite ban on entry for people from Syria, Iran, uh, Libya, Yemen, and Somalia. Uh, along with um, these countries, certain people from Venezuela, Andrea, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Nigeria, uh, Myanmar, uh, Tanzania, and Sudan were also banned. Well, I think that brings up a really interesting question about, about how race plays a role in this. I mean, let's face it, when, you, when you're looking at the Ukrainian population, and there was a, an interesting story that circulated in social media um, when they were doing the initial uh, refugees were crossing the border into Poland, and there was a young black medical student who was trying to cross the border and, and was told that he couldn't come. Um, and, and it was really fascinating. So what I'm wondering is, um, does the concept of racial formation help us understand why Ukrainian refugees are being folded into this category of, of whiteness while other people are being perceived in a different way? And, and Billy, I wonder if you want to break down what that concept actually means. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so racial formation is a concept that we actually learned about in one of my classes this year. Um, is a theory and an analytical tool in sociology um, is developed by Michael Omi and Howard Winnant um, and is used to look at race as a socially constructed identity um, where the content and importance of racial categories are determined by social, economic, and political forces. Um, as uh, Ami um, said himself, uh, I don't remember which book it was, but I have the source somewhere. 
Um, he described it as the process by which racial identities are created, lived out, transformed, and destroyed. Um, and now talking a bit um, on this with um, like essentially how this war in Ukraine um, plays with uh, racial formation, uh, I want to talk a bit about NATO. Um, now, I'm sure we've all like heard about NATO. We've seen it in the news a lot. Um, uh, is a for people who don't know, um, it was a alliance um, that was uh, put in place um, by multiple different um, Western powers and other European countries. And essentially, um, NATO was meant to prevent the spread of communism in Europe. Um, and this was like, it was put in place during the Cold War. Um, and the reason that it was set to um, prevent communism from spreading was because it viewed communism as a threat to freedom. Um, but that freedom is more, can more easily be described as white freedom. Uh, and delving in a bit onto that, uh, in the U.S. South, um, communism was actually synonymous with desegregation, and that's one of the big reasons why so many Southern um, Americans are so um, like adamantly against communism um, was because they felt that it was threatening their freedom. And I have a quote here from uh, Senator James Eastland in 1947. He was a Democrat for Mississippi, um, and he was explaining his support um, for the U.S.'s commitment to Europe um, by saying, there is more slavery on Earth today than in any previous time in the world's history. Communism is the greatest of all enslavers because Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia are the first nations in modern history which has recognized and practiced the doctrine of slavery as it applied to the white race. Um, and so that's one of the big reasons why they were so afraid of um, communism itself and actually also um, Nazism because they viewed it as a um, essentially like doing to us what we have done to um, black people for so long. Um, and the NATO itself is actually meant to um, fund and protect European colonization. Uh, and the U.S. has showed like adamant support of like Britain controlling Malay, um, which is part of what led up to actually the Vietnam War. Um, and it's always because they viewed communism as a threat to Western civilization, which is now understood to be a sort of dog whistle for whiteness. Yeah, I mean, everything that you just said is so just like unbelievably interesting. And, and I think it's ironic that, you know, American individuals were worried about, you know, being quote unquote enslaved by communism and Nazism since I think, I believe Hitler himself came out saying that uh, the American eugenics movement was one of the biggest inspirations behind his ideology. So, I mean, 
that's a lot. And just getting back to the question that Dr. Robin had asked, because I think it ties in perfectly with everything that you just said. Uh, I mean, race does play such a huge role in the way that we treat refugees. I mean, currently, and I didn't know this until recently, that we admit uh, refugees based on percentages and the percentages of white refugees that we uh, that we admit is so much higher than the percentages of non-white refugees. And we actually set these percentages ourselves and we enforce them. So it's not like, oh, it's like an accidental thing or you can just like give it up to mistake. Like, no, we are like purposefully admitting white refugees into our country at a significantly higher rate than we are non-white refugees. And so I think that, you know, understanding that we actually are doing this and that there is such a history to it, it, it just points to the to the fact that yeah, like, you know, if you are from Europe, if you are, if you are, you know, from an area where there uh, seems to be, you know, a higher standard of, you know, socioeconomic power, and like you are perceived to be more powerful because you are, you know, white, then you will be admitted to as a refugee to more places than you would be if you, you know, come from an area that is less developed. If you come from an area that is perceived to be less developed, that's perceived to be, you know, less than. And I think that that, you know, also speaks to the fact that, you know, so much of our, you know, world is like such, it has a Eurocentric view. And like, Cole, you mentioned like history class and like even in history class, like half of the things that we learn about is about Europe. Like even in world history, we were so focused on a Eurocentric view. And, and I think that just plays to the fact that, yeah, like race is so embedded in everything that we do and everything that we say and everything that we act and how we treat other people to the point where we're actually denying people, you know, entry into a safe haven from war because they're not white. And that's so, that's so, as you said, Billy, frustrating. It's so infuriating that this is how we're treating individuals. And as a person of color, like, this is terrible. Like, what if I came from another country and I was denied access to a safe haven because of the color of my skin? That's terrifying to think about. And it's terrifying to think about that even domestically, I can be treated differently because of the color of my skin. And so I think that this like hits home because, you know, I am a person of color and, and I hate that people who might look like me are being treated like they're less than human. I'd like to build off what Dominic said. It's appalling to me that the concept of decency and humanity can be overruled by like personal prejudice. Um, it seems like if you're going through a war and you need to seek like safety in another place, you should be granted that access because nobody deserves to live through trauma like that. Like it's not okay. It shouldn't happen, but it does. And it's kind of normalized at this point because it's happened so much. But for those who can't like retain the proper care that they need, it's ridiculously upsetting because I don't know, it's just, it's not cool. It's not okay. Right. And the like refugees are never at fault for being in a war. Like they're never at fault for, um, like what is going on in their country, whether it's a civil war, whether it's a war with another country, they're not the ones at fault. They are citizens. They are just trying to get by and live day by day. Um, and yet we still try to hold this sort of blame with them and we associate them with violence. And it's just so disgusting. <laughs> well, 
I, I want to ask you to speculate a little bit here because you know we're we're in the middle of this this uh, war in the Ukraine. We have some experience with prior wars and things like that, but I can imagine that the impact on these refugees' mental health has got to be just astounding. Do you think, though, that because of the the issues we've been talking about with the racial differences, that there's going to be a difference in what you see in the mental health struggles that are going to come from these refugees? I mean, there's trauma in war as it is. Now, let's layer on top of that. You have almost like the the cast of the haves and the cast of the haves nots um, of who's allowable and who's acceptable. How is that going to impact their mental health coming out of this war? And I know it's speculation, but go for it. Yeah, I actually have a, um, I have a statistic here that I found um, talking about uh, the mental health issues that um, Syrian refugees have actually um, faced from being displaced from their homeland. Um, and uh, like, let's see, the for the rates of PTSD, um, these are um, like, they range from 20.5 to 35.7%. So that's 35.7% of Syrian refugees face PTSD. Um, almost half of them face some form of depression. Uh, and around um, 32% of them face uh, like severe anxiety. Um, and again, all of this is to be expected um, from being in a war uh but the problem is a lot of the a lot of these syrian refugees like since they aren't being allowed into the u.s into um canada into um even like eastern european countries uh the only places that have been allowing them in are places that don't have the same resources um and so it's a lot more difficult to get those um to get those mental health issues treated yeah i mean i like i'm a terrible artist but i like i would love to paint a picture for anyone that's listening to this like imagine you are you know you're at home and your your entire village is destroyed your family's killed you know the resources that you and the and the environment that you become so accustomed is destroyed and then when you try to escape you're told no and that you're told that you are not good enough to be to receive care and to receive you know uh, security and safety in another country. I mean, what, who would feel good after that? No one would feel good after that. That's, that's such a huge disappointment. And, and that must be humiliating. I can't even imagine having to be in that position. I, I mean, I'd assume that that would probably, you know, diminish one's self-worth significantly, because as we've seen domestically, when individuals are faced with, for example, racism and homophobia and sexism at extreme rates, they internalize that hatred. And so I can only imagine that refugees could would do the same. And an internalized, you know, homophobia and racism and internalized hatred is, is it's like a silent killer. And so I would just only imagine, you know, how distraught, how hopeless, how isolated refugees must feel after being denied care and basic necessities and, you know, being forced to move to places that don't even pos that possibly don't even believe in mental health as like something that actually exists and they don't have access to any significant care. It it's just, I, it just, it breeds, you know, and it, and it allows for such devastation to an individual's psyche and to an individual's life. 
I can only imagine that, you know, trauma is just bred from these sort of situations and, and trauma that will impact someone for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I'd like to build off of that a little bit. I think that with the war in Ukraine specifically, like media has progressed to like lengths it never has before. And the fact that like I'm seeing like primary footage of events that are occurring like hours after they happen. And I think that having the idea that like all of this is being publicized, all of this is broadcasted, uh, so many people know about this war and some people aren't going to be treated for it. And that might be, I don't know, that might be discluded from media. Like it seems like it's taken more as like a bulk approach to like these people need help. All these victims need help. But the ones that do get help will be publicized. And then the ones that are kind of left stranded are just going to be stuck there and not get the assistance they deserve. And I think that we're going to see that in the long term and that um, those who have suffered are going to get the necessary care that they deserve if they are valued as needing those treatments. But you're bringing up this really interesting issue about the media and the media portrayal of refugees. And when you're seeing this in real time, I think that that we here in America, you know, you see uh, Chef Jose Andreas is out there, you know, cooking up meals in a kitchen in Poland, which is awesome and amazing. And he's been absolutely everywhere. Right. So this isn't a, a slam at all on him. But but this is what there are. Every time you go on Facebook and on social media, you see appeals for funds to help the Ukrainian refugees and all those types of things. And I wonder, is the media playing a role in the perception of these refugees that perhaps they did not play in Syria and Yemen and Palestine and places like that? Absolutely. I do believe that media is playing a significant um, role in this war and um, especially our perception of this war. Uh, one thing um, that I wanted to bring up here uh, was actually on um, on February 25th, uh, 2022, um, the CBS foreign correspondent, um, Charlie Degada, um, he was doing coverage in Ukraine um, about what's going on in the war and he was responding to a statement about how um, Ukrainian civilians have changed their attitude towards this war since Russian troops actually put boots on the ground. Um, and what he said was, and this is um, fully quoting him, this isn't a place, with all due respect, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. This is a relatively civilized relatively European, I have to choose my words carefully there too, city where you wouldn't expect or hope that it's going to happen. Um, that was, I had seen that clip being spread around on Instagram, on Twitter, um, and it was so just jarring. Um, the fact that like, I'm sure that it's like, that's an idea that um, a lot of Americans do have, have been thinking um but the fact that he said it out loud um and even was saying like he was choosing his words carefully but still said that 
fully and bluntly that this is a relatively civilized, relatively European um, city, that just, it holds this implication that because it is a European country, we have to care more about it because they look like us. They're blonde hair, blue eyed, um, and they look like us. And that's why people have to care about this war so much more. Um, and then it um, holds an even like greater connotation of um, them saying that they expect a war like this in Iraq, in um, Afghanistan. Um, and saying, like, even like they said, well, you wouldn't um, hope for it to happen. Does that mean that he's hoping that that war happened in Iraq and Afghanistan? Um, does that mean that those places aren't civilized? Um, like, sure, they're not European, but they're still people. I think that historically, um, especially in European countries, I'm going to throw the United States into that when majority white populations have their whiteness and power kind of confronted or challenged, they will retaliate. Um, and I think that right now what we're seeing is like one of the first like largely publicized and media covered events where white people are being murdered and slaughtered to such a high rate. So I don't know, it's gonna get coverage and it's gonna cause outrage because we're not used to seeing that and it shouldn't make a difference, but it does because it has throughout history and it will continue to. I don't know how that will change because it's so normalized. And, and you bring up such a good point about the difference in way in the way that you know people who are perceived white are, di- are treated versus people who aren't like for example you know i don't remember her name but you know that one individual i think she was a youtube star or something who had went missing for a significant period of time and everyone was speaking about it like there was significant coverage for weeks about it to the point that almost everyone except for me apparently knew her name everyone knows like what she did everything like it was big news and like i hate to say this but when white people go missing like everyone hears about it but when you know thousands of indigenous people go missing in around the country no one gets a word in it about it no one seems to care which is that's terrible that's awful and and i think that the media does play such a huge role because the media is one of the only ways that we get to hear about what's happening around us and so everything that we see through the media is what we perceive to be happening in the world and and you're right there are so many terrible things that have been uttered by you know by news anchors around the around the globe about what's happening people are calling like people are saying well you know this isn't a third world country this is europe and it's like why is it okay for war to happen in a quote unquote third world country and why is it okay for people to be slaughtered there but it's not okay when it happens in europe it shouldn't be okay anywhere and so i guess my point is is that yes the media does play such a big role in the way that we understand situations, in the way that we respond to situations. I mean, when, you know, there were attacks in Palestine happening. I mean, like I saw like maybe four or five people add like the donation to their profile on Instagram versus in 
you know, this current situation where like thousands of people are sharing about Ukraine and thousands of people are sharing resources. It's like we only care when white people are being terrorized. And and that's just so reflective of the way that we prioritize people over others and the way that society views people who aren't white as less than human, as as inferior. You know, I really appreciate that call out, Dominic, because I think you're you're nailing it right on the head. And and as we wrap up, I want to do a little rapid fire here around the idea of if you had one idea of one systemic change that you could do that would improve the acceptance and support of all refugees, what would be one thing you could do? Rapid fire it around the room. And I don't know who wants to kick us off because that was a big, hairy question to throw out there. But I know for me, uh, when I think about one thing I would do is I think we need more transparency in the media. I think we need a lot more transparency in the media. Uh, and we need to be able to to curate and figure out uh, how it is that we've got more transparent media resources around us. Who wants to kick us off? Who's got a great idea? I just want to echo you really quick, Dr. Robin. Um, I think that with a lot of conflict, like things can be resolved through like genuine, maybe even competitive conversation and like vulnerability, like having being compelled to have conversations with people and challenge their ideas and ensure that everyone is getting information like factually and transparently is so vital to everything. So for refugees to be stripped of their rights, like necessary basic human rights is ridiculous. And we need to have conversations around that to try and normalize their equal treatment because that's all they can hope for coming out of such ridiculous conflicts. Yeah. Yeah, kind of building off of that, um, I really like both of y'all's ideas um, and kind of want to expand that to um, talk about how the, like you had mentioned, transparency in the media. Um, I believe the media should we need more like actual coverage of these wars, like the same level of coverage that we have seen with Ukraine, where we have actual correspondents who are going out um, on the ground and showing people exactly what is happening in these wars and talking um, to the civilians there who are being genuinely affected um, by that war. Uh, but we we didn't see any of that. Um, like you had mentioned, Dominic, with Palestine, um, we didn't see really any of it with um, Iraq. Uh, we didn't see it with uh, Syria um, or Yemen. Like I, the media coverage that I see about Yemen just right now really only talks about how like it's a humanitarian crisis and then they get their like... Um, they're like gore porn shots of um, like a malnourished baby um, and they use that to spread publicity. But then where does the sympathy go after that? Yeah. And, and, and if I were to do something, if I were to try to, to attack this in a systemic way, I would just take a really, really strong hammer to our immigration system and um, really, really strong because I think the way that in which that we, you know, process immigrants and refugees 
is is appalling. I mean, we have documents that people have to sign to become, you know, citizens of the United States that aren't even translated into other languages. We have percentages of certain countries that, you know, like this country only admits like a small amount of individuals because it's a, a majority population of non-white individuals versus white countries with huge uh, percentages because we apparently like white refugees more. Uh, I mean, there there's just so many different things that are currently wrong with the way we treat people in our immigration system. And so, you know, bringing out that really, really strong hammer and just taking it to the system and 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 just changing the way in which we operate and, and our priorities as a society too. Are we going to continue to prioritize punishment and isolation or are we going to start prioritizing, you know, humanity and dignity and respect and compassion? And so I think that there isn't a single systemic change that I could even begin to think we should pursue because we need to tear down the whole damn system. Well, I have just loved and appreciated this conversation so much. Dominic, Cole, and Billy, you have, have really, I think, opened up quite a hotbed topic that touches on a lot of different areas. Uh, and I really want to thank you for joining me uh, to talk about mental health and acceptance of refugees and really the issues related to race and equity that, that honestly, um, I don't think people really have honest conversations about. Billy, I wonder if there's, uh, if you want to close this up with a few final thoughts. My, this is such a big topic, such a multifaceted, such a um, intersectional topic um, that we would never be able to cover fully in one 40-minute podcast. Um, and so I guess my... Um, hope for the people who are listening in is that after this ends, you continue these conversations on with the people in your life. Um, have those uncomfortable, have those uncomfortable conversations. Ask the uncomfortable questions. Get uncomfortable. Just in general, Americans are so incredibly used to just being comfortable within every aspect of our lives. And so just please, 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 once you turn this off, um, talk to your friends, um, talk to your neighbors, talk to your coworkers, um, and get word out about this because it's such an important um, conversation to have. Uh, and yeah, we, we need to treat people like people. Like we should treat all refugees the way that we're treating Ukrainian refugees. Um, Thank you so, so much um, to Cole and Dominic for taking your time to be a part of this. Um, I hope it wasn't too strenuous, um, but I think we had a really good conversation for what we were able to talk to. Uh, thank you, Dr. Robin, uh, mom, <laughs> for letting me um, have this podcast as part of my final. You are definitely going to help me get a great grade. Um and thank you to everyone behind the scenes who has been helping me set this up and prepare everything um, for like weeks now. Is I'm incredibly appreciative. Well, thank you, Billy, for coming back. Uh, like I say, Billy was one of the founding members of Work to Be Well uh, when she was in high school as a high school junior and uh, has been part of the journey for quite some time. 
So if you're looking for support with your mental health or any other medical questions, please visit us at providence.org. And for parents, teachers, and students, check us out at worktobewell.org. That's work2bewell.org. I'm Dr. Robin Anderson, and this this has been Talk To Be Well. I think that we uh, take it out today with what Billy said. Go out there and get uncomfortable. Be well, everybody.